CB Insights. CB Insights presents a conversation with Chamath Palahapatia, founder of Social Capital and legendary Silicon Valley venture capitalist. The interviewer is Bloomberg's Mark Millian. This conversation was recorded December 13, 2017. For more information about CB Insights, visit cbinsights.com. Here with Chamath Palpatia, founder of Social Capital, co-owner of the Golden State Warriors, former Facebook executive, which is where we're going to start this conversation. <laughs> um, so something you said about Facebook and social media was in the news this week. Yeah. Um, but first, I should quickly disclose that my wife just t- t- took a job there. It's a great um, company. Okay, uh, so I know, I know you later said uh, it wasn't meant to be a direct indictment of Facebook what, uh, alone, but I believe you said something along the lines of social media is ripping apart society and reprogramming our brains, something like that. In response, Facebook threw a little shade and said you haven't been at the company for six years and that's a very different place today. What do you say to that? response from them. Well, look, let's take a step back for a second. I mean, that's an amazing company. And the the tragedy of my comments a month ago was it was a broad statement about my reaction to just social media in general. And that's a lot of things of which Facebook is a part. But there are many other things. And the whole context of it is that all of these things, in my opinion, sit on top of a business model that allows us to conflate and now confuse truth and popularity. And it's come to a point where Years ago, maybe the context of you know, the stuff that was awkward or uncomfortable would have been cyberbullying. And maybe that was the extent of it. But in 2017 and beyond, I think we all know now the extent of um, that very, very small percentage of things that, that may not go right are much more insidious, potentially. And so it was in that context where I made those statements. And unfortunately, because I was such a visible part of maybe that success, it was easy to paint the brush of it's, this was me talking about Facebook. And it was not. Uh, and which is, which is awkward and terrible, because it's like, those guys made me, quite honestly. right? And I have deep friendships there. And the people that I work with and that work for me and that I work for are amazing. So anyways, just to clarify that, that's what, I'm, what I really think we need to figure out is like, where are the boundaries? You know, like when you invented TV, at first it just seemed amazing. And then you found out that there were all these sort of like long tail outcomes. And as a society, you had to figure it out. And the reactions to figuring it out in part was societal, in part were the television companies, and in parts were government, right? Music, the same thing, right? Print media, the same thing. And so I think in this context, we're at a point where this first chapter has been clearly mostly overwhelmingly good, and now we have to pick apart the nuances and fix them for the future. And that's what, that's what I was trying to say. And obviously, you know, having had the last 48 hours to clean up my language, it sounds much crisper now. Uh, and at the time, uh, you know, I was just kind of riffing and kind of stream of consciousness. Um, well, I mean, you're, you're sticking to your core point that it's potentially yeah. like very damaging to social media in general is damaging to society. Well, look, I'll tell you what it is. It's damaging, for example, in, to me in some ways, in very small ways, which is that I confuse what is valuable sometimes. Um, 
And I just wonder whether if I'm suffering from that confusion and I seemingly have enough signaling where I don't need the affirmation of the people around me, I wonder how other people deal with it. And forget maybe even adults dealing with it. How do you know, younger people deal with it? Um, or people that are dealing with more severe issues, whether they're, they're mental or emotional or otherwise. You talked about spending 15 minutes picking out a filter for one of your photos. I did. Adam and I, Adam Bain and I were in New York this weekend, um, and I uh, took a photo, uh, and I really thought about it. And I think at some level that's really okay. Uh, but at some other level, it's, I'm just consciously wondering to myself, Wow, that's not, that was not a behavior that I even knew existed within my value framework a few years earlier. Um, and, I, and, I, and I'm trying to, as I get older, self-actualize around these kinds of things and ask these kinds of questions because I think they're worth asking and I wonder, and I suspect other people think about it. And if you have an opportunity to vocalize some of this stuff, um, I just have to do a better job of how I do it. You know, part of my takeaway as well is like, I have to kind of grow up and realize that I actually do, for the most part, say what other people are thinking, but I have to do it in a more constructive way because like, the, the, this kind of press cycle that's been happening is completely unnecessary. Because the press cycle that should have probably happened was more about the conversation starting versus like the me versus Facebook, because that's not what it is. Well, I'm curious, we have a big audience here. Like, how many people agree with this point of view? Uh, show of hands. Clapping too is good. It's like more than half, I'd say. Dude, it was most. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody but this guy, but he's on his computer. He couldn't clap if he wanted to. Well, you have one or two social media investments at Social Capital. Um, what do you tell them? Or uh, if you were still at Facebook, what would you tell them to do right now? I, I, look, I, uh, here's what I know, which is I don't know the answer. Um, a lot of how we invest is in a process that we call becoming an exceptional learning organism. Now, that may sound gobbledygooky, but let me just unpack it for a second. Today's world is so incredibly dynamic. Everything is changing, and the rate of change is so rapid, and it's so multidimensional. And so to think that one knows the answer a priori is really, really, really scary to me. But it's your job to advise some of these companies that, that no, it's are in my job. It's, but no, it's my job to coach them that not knowing is okay. And then it's my job to coach them on a framework that allows them to learn on the presumption that they will react quickly enough to the things that need to be fixed as they learn it. So across all the investments that we do, whether it's cancer or diabetes or education or rockets or social media, that's the goal because nobody knows what's going to be around the corner in three months, six months, a year. So yeah, we have a bunch of these interesting social media investments because we want to be learning to try to answer the question. I don't know what the answer to the question is. Um, you know, the, the internet is actually like at, at a very core fundamental level, we are going to have to question the underlying business model and mechanics of monetization uh, and economic viability that it is offering people. We have thought that the only way to make money is via advertising. Since 1996, when the first business on the internet started, that's what we thought we were supposed to do. Maybe that's not the only way. Maybe subscription now should actually dominate. 
maybe there are a whole host of business decisions that we need to revisit in the context of empowering individuals and empowering companies to operate with more degrees of freedom. So you think the social media problem is tied to a business problem? In part, I think it is a business model question, absolutely. Right? You have people here that, like for example, take enterprise software. When you sell enterprise software, the people that pay you are the people that use it and the people that then can demand things of you. Right? When, um, you know, for example, we're building these AI chips with a company called Grok. When our customers say, hey, listen, here's the power performance we expect because we are the consumers of your product, we have to listen to them because they're the ones paying us millions of dollars, right? Um, the internet and, and sort of like media businesses literally from 1996 to today don't operate that way. You have core engagement over here and core monetization over here and you try to roughly weave them together in a, in a method that's roughly tolerable. Never complementary and never necessarily additive, All right? right? So that's a real core issue. I want to shift a little bit. Uh, you came to America as an immigrant. You're... I came to Canada as a refugee. I moved to America on a TN visa from Canada. Okay. Um, you're vice president of Facebook, which became a powerful force in politics and society. You're an owner of the Warriors, where many of your players, especially Steph Curry, were central figures in protest debates with President Trump. Um, I'm wondering what you would say is the most important political or cultural issue to you personally. Maybe besides social media. Um, I think that um, my story is emblematic of so many people in the following way. Most of us are not born with the deck stacked in our favor in all kinds of ways. And some of us have many of those cards stacked against us. Um, whether it's gender, religion, sexual orientation, physical appearance, sense of self-worth, you know, the way your parents rate, whatever it is, there's all of these things that we all accumulate as emotional baggage that retards our individual progress as humans, okay? And so we all want to find people that have fought through that because those kinds of people give us energy about our own potential. And I've been extraordinarily lucky to fight through a lot of that to get to the other side. And what I feel every day is that I have a responsibility to then just be authentically myself in a way that energizes other people who themselves feel like they're going through that struggle. So to me, the, the biggest thing that I care about politically is this concept of just like, just the value of human capital, which is that we as individuals can frankly just get run over now with um, all kinds of small dollar influence, whether it's via lobbying, via gerrymandering, um, whether it's through you know, populism that gets perverted into like sort of, you know, kind of like these, these weird political manifestations and all of it slows down the human capital potential. You know, like if you take a sports analogy to America, if you're running a sports team, you look forward to free agency because in free agency, it allows you to white page and say to yourself, okay, who are the people I want on the field, on the court? Why, for what reason? And then you can choose athletic capability, cultural capability, right, teamwork, all of these different characteristics. And then around them, you build the team that you want. And then you go out and you compete and you try to win. Similarly for the United States, while that doesn't express itself in a year, it's expressed itself that way for hundreds of years, right? The long arc of America is basically like the best run sports franchise you can imagine. 
championship after championship after championship, whether or not you like the Patriots. It's the Patriots of the 2000s, or it's maybe the current Warriors. My point is, America has done this exceptional job of being a beacon for human capital. For guys like me, for people like you, the deck is kind of stacked against you, and you're like, that's the one place where I can flip all the cards the other way. What an amazing thing. And now you see it in a different light. People don't want to come here. CB Insights assigns a mosaic score to private companies based on the three M's, money, market, and momentum. We also provide company valuations. Learn more at cbinsights.com. And that's so tragic. There are these amazing people all around the world who would otherwise abandon everything that they have built up to come here and start with nothing to rebuild themselves on behalf of this team. And the idea that we wouldn't want the best of those people to help us to advance the ball and then to push everything to everybody else all around the world to me is it's, it's insane. And that's happened in a year. That literally changed in a year. And that really saddens me. Will you run for mayor of San Francisco? No. You know, my, my leverage in the world is hopefully to accumulate capital and direct it in areas that are underinvested in that right this wrong. That's and what the federal government does, too. That's what well, they're I'm, set up I'm, to. I mean, this is not substitutional. It can be additive, right? It's not a zero-sum game in that way. Um, the scope of how we do it now has definitely changed. You know, pre this election, I would have said, Everything that we do, we can do in the United States, and that's 99% of the solve, because the best of the best are always going to be here. If we solve cancer here, if we solve diabetes here, they'll take them to the rest of the world. Now, unfortunately, we live in a much more balkanized, polarized world, where we're going to stress test these assumptions of globalism, in that there are going to be pockets of companies that need to get built and rebuilt all over the world. And so we, as a byproduct of that, have taken a much more global orientation. The best and the brightest aren't necessarily all aggregating here now in the way that they used to. And so we have to go to them. We have to be open for business in ways that we were never open for business before. And it just creates tremendous business complexity, which we'll do because the outcome is what's important. Um, but ultimately, like we are now you know, in this world of free agency with one hand tied behind our back. And that's, that was totally and completely avoidable. You've talked a lot about demographic diversity inside tech companies and VC firms. Has Valley made progress? I think they've made some progress. So that's an example of where, you know, I hit a nerve, but I did it well. You know, comparing that to, you know, the last couple of days. <laughs> um, meaning, that's also something that I felt strongly about. I, I, I have felt viscerally this idea of being an outsider, of not being credentialed, of not being packaged, of not having the gold stars that direct me as being an anointed one. And all of a sudden, when you say it out loud, everybody else is like, me too, right? Me too, me too. Uh, and then what has happened is we're in, the, we're in chapter one of the great unwind of uh, the kind of like venture aristocracy. And at the end of chapter one, which is roughly where we are, is the great capitulation of the historical firms. And what they're realizing is, well, we're probably going to have to do it. So might as well just stuff the box with a couple colored people and maybe some women. Now, that's how it starts. That's what they're saying to themselves. But what they're going to find is some of us are actually pretty good. 
And then eventually some of us will take over those organizations and then they'll rip them apart from the inside. And so, you know, if it took a couple of um, articles and, um, you know, we worked with the information in that case to, to publish that first list, to partner with organizations who believe in that kind of stuff, that was a great thing. And we don't ever need to get any of the accolades for that, but I will feel really proud that I was a part of that movement, at least kicking it off. One of your former partners at Social Capital just went to one of those traditional firms, Klein yeah. Perkins. Um, do you think the, the institutional, the, the old like Kleiners and Sequoias are in a moment of change right now? I think that they're in a moment of soul searching to figure out what the future looks like. I don't think they particularly have a very good idea. Um, and so I think their version of the future will be some, you know, small modulo iteration of the past. And that's fine. You know, it's not dissimilar, for example, to newspapers trying to sell more ads while Google gets created. And I just think in our industry, we are Google and that class are the newspapers. Social capital has been branching into all sorts of weird financial vehicles. In October, <laughs> you started a new program where any company can go fill out a questionnaire, upload some financial information or usage data, and if you like what you see, you'll write them a check, sight unseen, I guess. Um, so I'm wondering how many Nigerian princes have signed up their startups? Well, that pejorative comment aside, uh, uh, let, me, let me sort of tell you what our goal is. Um, the heartbeat of our business is our traditional venture investing. We have done a really good job of partnering with entrepreneurs at the earliest stages to build vibrant companies in some really interesting areas. Companies that you guys know where we led you know, the, the formal Series A's like Slack and companies that are getting baked like Grok, companies like Gluco, Psyops, et cetera. So I, our, our high-touch venture business is amazing. But I kept, again, asking the question, guys, the rules of the game are changing. More and more entrepreneurs, whether it's because of choice or whether because of non-optionality, are not going to be in the United States. They're also increasingly not necessarily going to be in Silicon Valley in New York City because it just costs too much to be here. So how do you find these people? How do you go to where they are? And the analogy is the following. About a year ago, I was in a situation where I thought about getting a massive line of credit from a massive bank. What were you buying? Look, I mean, I mean, you, now you want to unpack that. Look, I am risk on all the time. Okay, go okay, ahead. So I'm not afraid. So it was a billion dollar credit line and I'm sitting with the CEO of the bank. I'm like, I want one to two billion dollars of credit. I may do whatever I want with it. I'll secure it against my you know, PA, let's go. Now, when somebody asks for that amount of money, you get a meeting, as you can imagine. Um, but I'm the same person that two weeks earlier applied on that same bank's website for a credit card because I needed to give it to our au pair. Uh, and so that was like a you know, $500 credit decision. And it's the same institution. One is high touch and one is automated decision making. And my, my, my takeaway from that process was, well, isn't that how venture should also work? Right? When you want to raise a 10 to $15 million Series A, of course we want to spend an enormous amount of time with you, get to know you intimately well, forge a relationship, and work together. But if you're odd around the world, or you can't necessarily even get into the United States, but you're starting something that's vibrant and it's working, why shouldn't you be able to describe your business in a really logical, honest way? 
right, numerically, and have people be able to back you and support you. And so the way that we think about this service, which we call capital as a service, is an automated complement to everything that we do that is our high-touch business. And our high-touch business will always be the center. It'll always be the heartbeat. We have a group of eight people, by the way, half men, half women. I mean, kick-ass team, they fucking rock. And then we have this other business now, which is, hey, if you're anywhere in the world, 24-7, 365, and you want money to move your business forward, just fill out the form, and we promise to get back to you right away. And in a lot of the cases, we're able to say yes. That's just a transformational thing. And, you know... How many deals have you taken that way? We've seen 5,000 companies in seven months. How many checks have you written? uh, Less than 100. Our goal this year is to write 100. Our goal next year is to write 1,000. And then our goal every year thereafter is to write 10,000 checks a year. Time will tell whether we can pull that off. We don't know whether that's going to take an extra four years. And, you know, you we don't need know. that billion-dollar credit line. We don't, we don't know how we're going to fund it, as an example. So while well, you're bringing up something really interesting, think of all the companies that may want to support us in this process. Think of all the governments that may want to support us in this process. Think of all the philanthropies, all the foundations. Think of all the sources of capital, the World Bank, the IMF, all these people who want what we can enable in some small way, which is people who can take control of their own future, to self-actualize, to be economically self-sufficient everywhere in the world. We know for a fact when you do that on a need-blind basis, more women, more minorities, more people in the game that never would be in the game. It's, that's the path to economic stability. And that's the path to prosperity. That's the path to peace. That takes 25 years to build. But you got to get these people in the game. They're at the starting line screaming out that they want your help. And so we're like, yeah, let's go do it. So, but those are high class problems, right? Like if we are in the situation, Mark, where like I have to beg, borrow, and steal to find people who want to support entrepreneurship all over the world, so be it. I will be on a plane the rest of my fucking life. So the other end of the spectrum, you're organizing this thing called a SPAC, which is sort of a way for a company to go public without actually doing an IPO. What's going on with that? Want to get smarter fast? Read the latest from the CB Insights Intelligence Unit. Learn about our expert intelligence reports, briefs, and teardowns. Visit cbinsights.com forward slash research. So, you know, when you, when you look at the things that we do, right, it can be it can seem confusing. We have early stage investing, we have this black box thing, we have you know, the public hedge fund, you know, we have a SPAC, what, what are you doing? And what I tell people is like, look, we are not in the business of confusing strategy and tactics. Those are all tactics. What is the strategy? The strategy is that great entrepreneurs are changing the world. They exist all over the world, and they also exist in every single stage of development, early stage, growth, public. And Our business is in the job of supporting them. We are in the business of entrepreneurial finance, entrepreneurial capital, entrepreneurial insights, business acceleration, growth. And so when we talk to them, they're like, we're really afraid of the IPO process. We don't trust the banking infrastructure. We don't trust the process. But we know we need to get liquid. And we know we need to offer downstream liquidity to our employees to retain them. And so Tony Bates, myself, Mark Mizvinsky, our team, Phil Deutsch, we took a step back and we said, how do we solve this problem? 
and we found an existing instrument off the shelf, right? It's called a SPAC. It's existed for years. It's been used for years. And we refactored it to recreate the IPO process in a really disruptive, cheap, and fast way. 60 to 90 days, you're public. I can't tell you what company we're going to SPAC. Um, but it's I a verb now? You SPAC it? People, are, people use it that way. You know, I mean, we, we say we're going to IPOA it, which is because like, we've reserved all the ticker symbols IPOA through Z. So we'd love to kind of do this mm. one after the other. Um, but what I will tell you is that um, I think within the next, sort of within the first six to nine months, you're going to see a really, really iconic business potentially take a hard look at this. And first to six, nine months of next year. Probably, I would say that there, you know, if there's, there's just going to be some hot and heavy action in the first couple quarters, I think. 2018. It'll be pretty cool. Quick last question, and then we're going to jump into uh, the underrated, overrated game. Um, before that, you're reportedly hiring NBA star David Lee to be at your firm. Is that true? Um, so David has co-invested in a bunch of stuff with us. Uh, obviously, I met him when he joined the Warriors. Um, this is a smart, smart guy. I mean, good investor, good capital allocator. He's managed his PA unbelievably well. So here's a guy, he's a two-time All-Star, and you look under the hood and he talks about how he, he is literally out, I mean, he's made an enormous amount of money, obviously, as a basketball player, and you see how he's compounded, you're like, wait a minute, this is like a, this is a really sophisticated guy. And so we've done a lot of deals together. I've seen it up close. Um, I'm not gonna confirm or deny what we're doing, but I think it's fair to say there's a, there, he's got a, his future post-basketball, It'll, it'll be an order of magnitude bigger than his life in basketball. Fair enough. All right. Underrated, overrated. Um, so I'm going to name 11 topics, rapid fire. Answer in one word if you think they're overrated or underrated. Bitcoin. Underrated. Blockchain. Overrated. Okay. AI. Underrated. Facebook. Underrated. Of course. Google. Underrated. Massively underrated. Autonomous cars. Overrated. Ethereum. Overrated. Elon Musk. Underrated. Massively underrated. He's done a lot already. All right. Venture capitalists. Massively overrated. <laughs> uh, Andreessen Horowitz. Overrated. Kleiner Perkins. Overrated. All right. Thank you, Chamath. Thank you guys for listening. CB Insights creates the software platform used by companies like GE, Cisco, and Castrol to predict emerging trends, see competitors' playbooks, stalk the smart money, and identify tomorrow's challenges. To learn more about us, visit cbinsights.com.